Classical Rebellion. Yeah. Courtesy of Adams Avenue Bookstore. John's Hermitage. That's right. Coming to you, not through the courtesy of Ballast Point. No, we're, we're not Ale. sponsored by we're Ballast Point. We're not sponsored Point. by Ballast Point Ale yet. But we could be. So we wanted you to know that we're we not might. being brought to you through the auspices. Cheers. Wait, is this the amber? This is the yes. amber. No, I have the double IPA. You have the amber. Oh, amber. you may keep the double IPA. Cheers. Cheers. Just looking up your old address. <laughs> there you go. Mmm, this ballast point is delicious. I mean, the finish is, I don't, I don't know. There's nothing Co quite like a coffee? ballast point ale. A little coffee in there? I think it goes perfectly with classical music. There's something so it's classical about the dimensions and lines of a ballast point. Yeah. Don't you? Anyway, um, so this is the first of our at-home um, classical music chit-chats um, from the friendly confines of my Pacific Beach lair. And uh, to begin with, I, I just went and fetched something from my music shed about uh, that I wanted to show Garrett, which is the, the Music Lover's Handbook by Ellie Siegemeister, published in 1942 during the war, subject to the parameters of the Wartime Paper Act. I, I first came across this book back in the 1980s, and I've since rebought what might as well have been my copy, but I don't think it was. Um, and there's something so uh, of its time about a single book that will be your guide to classical music. I mean, this is essays on uh, you know a ton of different composers and criticism and articles, and you know what you need to go as a modern symphony goer. And and there's I like that. Yeah. I actually like that idea. It's fantastic. And that's kind of basically what this God, is meant to be. It's what's missing. Nobody, not nobody, not nobody. Fewer people know the rules of the game to going to the symphony and especially the opera. There's more rules to the game of opera. Well, that's because we live in a culture at the moment that basically has no expectations of anyone. Just bring to it what you bring to it. There are no expectations. Right. Yeah. Well, there kind of are for your own good and for the enjoyment that you're yeah. going to derive from it. It might have helped you to listen, yeah. get some context. It's not context, recontextualization. Yeah. But the rules of the game used to be really intense in the in the late classical period, early romantic period. Audiences would listen for the theme, then they would listen for the counter melody, then they would listen for the key change, recapitulation. They knew sonata form, and they would play that game, and they enjoyed playing that game. Yes, they had and, a role to play. Right. And then they would discuss it, and their skills at playing the game got better because they knew the rules to the game. And that leads us to a discussion about what it means to be an opera audience and what is and, expected. And, of you. and yeah. that's another that's another topic, but one that I have very definite opinions about, which I would be very happy to share at some point. But no, I mean, it doesn't necessarily, I think, mean that the rules for being a symphony goer or a classical music goer in any capacity have to be as intense as they perhaps were. Right. But it's, it, it can yeah. be as intense as you want to make it for your own and and I, I cannot help but believe but that the the enjoyment factor of any individual uh, person or intellect attending a concert is going to be that much greater based on the tools that they can bring to assimilate mm -hmm. all that information otherwise it's just yeah. a welter of sound and welters of sound are nice sometimes yeah. but I don't think it helps you to get at the real inner meaning of the music a watchmaker can appreciate a Rolex much more than me I can look at it. It's a pretty little device. Hmm. I get it. And I think that's how some more and more 
a greater and greater percentage of the audience are looking at this music. Like it's a pristine thing to, to look at almost. It's, it's, a, it's pretty to hear, but they don't understand the inner workings. And that's what we're here to help with. I don't completely understand. You understand the inner workings of music much better than I do. As far as key change, all of that. You're, you're an instrumentalist, you're a composer. I'm just a singer, which means <laughs> I feel it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 my, my compositional technique is not based on any kind of pre-foreknowledge of, of what is going to, going to intellectually, you know, mentally or, or, or abstractly lead from one thing to another. I, I compose the music that I feel. Mm -hmm. And worry about figuring it out later. Sure. That's that's just the way it works for me. You know, this, interestingly, this is kind of this is off off topic but related. I, there's a, a very interesting book on Broadway composition composers, Broadway Babies Say Goodnight. Okay. Uh, I forget the the guy's written a couple of different books, and he talks about the 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 way that different musical theater uh, composers work with each other and and what their technique is. There are some teams. Uh, lyricists and composers, there are some teams, they're not all the same. Some teams, uh, the lyricist likes to get the mel get melodies from the composer first and okay. then fit uh, on a cassette tape or something and then fit words to it. And, and they like to work apart. Some uh, composers or lyricists write their words first and then give them to a composer and the composer then you know sets, sets it to music mm -hmm. and they work apart. Some teams work together. And they just go to the office, you know, every day, and then just pound it out, you know, and come up with stuff right. on the spot. There's no, there's there is no formula. There's no set way of arriving at a composition or a uh, or a, a, a theater piece. Or a, it just has to it 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 has to happen. It evolves. Uh -huh. It blooms. Right. One way or another, it it, it happens. So it used you know. to. Oh, that shot's fired. Because it doesn't happen much anymore. <laughs> the no. flower comes dead. It's happening left rest reliably. It happens when it, it happens when the when when the tourist industry uh, realizes well, Broadway, that they, they, yeah. when they've played out a yeah. musical and they need a, something new for them, they all of a sudden they say, "Come on, give us a new piece." So anyway, yeah, yeah it's pretty much driven by the convenience of the tour the uh, the tour industry. Um, yeah, well, it, it plays right into opera. I mean, we've got. Uh, upcoming this weekend at the San Diego Symphony, a, a piece by Mason Bates. The Garages of the Valley, I believe, or Garages of Silicon Valley, something like that. And he got a... Well, this is the Garages of Pacific this Beach. This is the Garages of Pacific Beach. You know, and yeah. I've, I've got my interiors nicer than You this. should write a piece of music based on the Garages of Pacific Beach. Can one, can one write just like sarcastically reactive pieces, like in the way of a review? <laughs> Instead of a review, I've written a sarcastic refutation of your music. Oh, that would be good. Yeah, that would work. <laughs> it's a little more involved, but... Yes. Um, so he became popular... Not popular. He had a moment last year because the Santa Fe Opera put on his opera, Steve Jobs. So an opera right. based on Steve Jobs. This is the same guy. And... I, 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 I'm not looking forward to hearing... I've listened to his music. Well, I it's I, I certainly, in all honesty, was not very impressed by Ipolitov's Nocturne at the San Diego Symphony last week. That was not an impressive piece. You know, I listened um, to it two more times, just to be fair, which that's high praise for me. <laughs> for me to listen to uh, 20th, first, or 20th 
No, I believe that's a 21st century piece. More than once means that's that's a rarity. And it, it grew on me a little bit. It um So does mold. You know what it sounded like to me? You know in, in ODA, Von Williams ODA? Yeah. Emmanuel bum 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 be that descending line after that. If you say so. Yeah. I can't again, not a great musician, great singer. <laughs> Uh, so I listened to the, there's two big crashes in that um, nocturne, followed by this kind of chromatic descending, almost Middle Eastern, Arabic type sound. And it almost sounded exactly note for note, like Vaughn Williams' ODA. Hmm. And so I played one and I played the other, played one, played the other. I was like, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's what jumped out to me of the piece initially. Even if I had known that, I would not necessarily have gathered a great deal of, of, um, programmatic relationship between the two pieces. No. No, <laughs> I don't worry about the program. Some people, my dad likes to make a program. Like a like a little action scene in his head around music. I yeah. just go with how I'm, like I go more Schopenhauer. Uh, so music gives you access to the emotion in and of itself, free of context. Instrumental music. Opera is different because there's a, obviously a story involved. And so that's why you can listen to maybe if you had been. I, mean, I would say that though that, that um, yes, I, I admit that there is that there is that 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 approach to to listening to it. But I do also think that that sometimes, perhaps it's when a piece of music is not particularly efficient in engaging that instance impressionability of motive and drive, and you know it's some sort of inner rhetoric mm -hmm. uh, that a, a program which is too easily a parody presents itself as okay. it did the other night for me. I mean, I just right. couldn't help it. This is, I'm, I, yeah. I, I just was not impressed by that. There was enough inner substance in it to arrive at a. So the nocturne you came up with was basically one thirty in the morning, 16th and market downtown San Diego, where all the tents are. Pretty much. Urban camping. That's the urban camping area of San Diego. Yeah, there was a steamroller involved. Is that, involved how, we have, is that, that how we have to say it? We can't say indigent or homeless. We have to say urban camper to be I'm, sensitive. I just want to take a break at, at this point in the proceedings just to remind you that we are not yes. being brought to you by right. Ballast, Ballast Point, Point Ale. Ale yet. Ballast Point Brewing. Some of the best marketing in the beer business, really, with their the the, the compass the compass the compass oh, yeah, uh, sextant nice. logo, yeah. and I, I'm I've always been very impressed with uh, with their product. It's very consistent. He he said sextant. <laughs> getting back to our <laughs> getting back to our uh, train of thought. Is it a train of thought? Um, well, at, at the moment, it's kind it's of more like, like string theory. Or it could be a bullet train to nowhere. A bullet train to nowhere. But be that as it may. Um, but, so let's talk about the last last week's concert that we both went to at San Diego Symphony on Saturday, October 6th. Started with the Michael very, Politoff Nocturne. Overall, very, very enjoyable. Um, if you look at the review of Arthur Framis on the um, uh, Classical Rebellion page and compare it. That's our signal. That's our signal. Fist with a spear. Fist with spear. Um, classical rebellion. We are the 300. Well, two of them anyway. Two of the 300, yeah. Two of the 300. Uh, and it couldn't be any different from the review that uh, 
appeared in the in the Union Tribune. I didn't read it. Which is not even a San Diego paper. Uh, it's printed <laughs> in Los Angeles and uh, bears a tangential relationship to what goes on in this city. Um, but it was just all, you know, a triumph. It was all mm -hmm. a laudatory success. Right. It was now I, the audience enjoyed themselves immensely, and I did too. Yeah, it, my criticism is different from my enjoyment. You know, my criticism mm -hmm. is based on what's it going to take to really raise this game. That's that's how I approach things. You know, if I come come away with obvious areas of where I say, you know, that knob could be turned up to eleven, and that knob could be turned up to eleven. Those knobs are all in balance and good. Well, then that's it. And there were plenty of knobs that could be turned up to 11 in last week's right. concert. Do you have your phone on you? I don't. Okay. Why? I wanted you to look up the definition of conscientiousness. Conscientiousness? Mm -hmm. Well, adhering to um, principles of conscience that uh, one holds to. and so, so going about things in a careful manner, respectful of commitments oh, to other people. Commitments to other people and standards, inner, inner standards yeah. and ethics that have been set as a, right. as a... So this is what I wrote in the in the San Diego Reader. And I'll, I'll make a longer version on Classical Rebellion as well. Um, for world-class horn sections, conscientiousness must be the number one priority. And you can read between the lines there if you'd like regarding the San Diego Symphony's horn section. Well, certainly for last night concert. for that concert. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there was it was not conscientious, not in the slightest. No, but I believe you know it's it's as I said in well as Mr. Framus said in the review, um, they need a conductor who uh, will hold them can can hold. And I understand that there is that there's you know we're in between music directors at this point. Yeah. Conducting the concert was Ada Devart. Ada Devart and. You know, he was too old for, for them because they need a younger person who can really hold them to a conscientious standard, which was lacking because the energy flagged, the attention to detail flagged. Um, and it was, you know, it, it's pretty music. It's you're guaranteed to enjoy it. Yeah. So and and are, next, we, yeah. are we better off having a, 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 a slightly sagging orchestra in town for a given concert than no orchestra at all? Yeah. You bet we are. But yeah. in this instance, one, it has to be observed that they needed to be taken to the woodshed in the preparation for that concert and right. shown what taken outside yeah. and shown what's like. It's called woodshedding for a reason. Yeah. And so the other two pieces were the the Grieg Piano Concerto and Beethoven Symphony Number no. Seven. And it will be very interesting to see how the Taiwan Philharmonic approaches the Liszt Piano Concerto in their concert. On, on Halloween, on Halloween, on the October the thirty first, All Hallows Eve, as it were, uh, here in San Diego, uh, and the night before in Orange County, uh, it'll be very interesting to see how 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 they have, uh, what level they set for themselves with an even harder concerto, uh, and Stephen Huff as the soloist. Well, he's um, phenomenal, right? He's, but he's the... I would say that given phlegmatic. Interaction well, they're on a tour. between they're on a tour as well. But yes, but given a phlegmatic interaction between a conductor and an orchestra, you will get unsure entrances and from anybody, mm -hmm. you know. So we'll see how that works out. Yeah, but I have a feeling that that's the you know, that's going to be a you know an eye opener for San Diego audiences. Yeah, because yeah. I guarantee you they're taking that very seriously. Well, before that, we've got Gergiev on the twenty fourth. 
and that's going to be titanic as well. Yeah. Not something to be missed. Not something to be missed. You know, when you stop and think about the struggles that Toscanini and, Shostak and, Shostak or, and uh, Stokowski, the tussles that they went through mm -hmm. to, to be the, the person to premiere that symphony in the West, it was smuggled out on microfilm. And they were, you know, both Toscanini, the virulent anti-fascist, you know, determined to, to, to be the one to give that mm -hmm. for the first time. Uh, and it's, you know, his finger is typically stuck in the electrical socket for that one. It's, it's a, an amazing performance. Mm. That's yeah. a great work. Uh, so a hard driven and... Um, the Shostakovich number seven, yeah. which is what Gary yeah. conducting with both the Marinsky... But I wish they were doing eight and nine, and, you know, in, in the same sequence, because it's, <laughs> it's revelatory. Yeah. Because the eighth, again, is a war symphony, and the ninth is not what Stalin was expecting. Hmm. Uh, How so? Because it's based on Haydn's string quartets, and it, it even Shostakovich has been playing them all summer, and it's very understated and somewhat laconic. Mm. You know, it's like the emptiness of a neighborhood that's been denuded of chill, of, of of its residents by death and war, and dare one say it by gulags as well. Sure, so there's there's a that's a one double edged that's a double edged sword in that. You can hear children playing in the distance, but you just don't, all you see is craters around you. In mm -hmm. that, it's it's haunting. And it's not what Sh what Stalin wanted, right? At all for the for, for the, of the Russian the, people, the the, yeah. the big symphony at the end of the war, right? Hmm. No, it's it's a so there's I mean, yeah, the, I mean number ten didn't come till fifty two or something. Can't remember exactly. Yeah, probably ten, because yeah. Shostakovich was probably too scared to put anything on paper mm -hmm. <laughs> until after yeah. Stalin was dead, right? So anyway, no, but the the seven is uh, with the both orchestras combined. Don't combine. Don't miss it. That's fantastic. I can't wait. Yeah. Something about what you're saying about your criticism is separate from your enjoyment of the concert. Uh, for me, it is part of the enjoyment of the concert. In that I... In the 19th century, the way they spoke about music and talked about music and argued about music is what we do now with sports. So people will say, Tom Brady is the greatest of all times. It's or LeBron like James is the greatest of all time. And someone will say... You are out of your mind. Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time, or Joe Montana is the greatest of all time, and then they'll go at it and they'll rip down the other right. side and they'll sure. say, "Well, his offensive line had no reason being on the field." But if you say something about Joyce Young's piano concerto performance of the Greek piano concerto was phenomenal, but that orchestra had no reason being on the stage, well, now that feels wrong. But that's how. That's well, just part of the game. This is, and again, this is why we're doing this. I'm not saying because that we they actually on the stage, but this is why this is why we're bothering to do this because mm -hmm. we actually care enough about it and are passionate enough about it to talk about it, and when we're not being paid to do it, right? This is a labor of love. This is a labor of love, but it's you know somebody needs to be talking about this. Which I mean, makes we are us amateurs. <laughs> well, it, it certainly makes us enthusiasts, and we do have a certain amount of insight. Well, the root of, word of amateur is is love. Is love because we love it. Yeah. Um, by the way, I just wanted to stop and observe the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm drinking on TV. You're, you, <laughs> you are. So, breaking one of the rules. Yeah. Um, next thing you know, I'll be smoking on TV. But what you said about the San Diego Symphony needing a younger conductor is going to... You know, well, they're going to get one. We'll see they what he got does one. with yeah. Well, he's from Venezuela, and he's had a different life growing up, I would assume, than most than any of us. Um, I'm not wild about the... the I mean, it, it, it's not that I... I, I we'll see how he does. Pyare. But um, Pyare is the, the new music director. 
given the fact that San Diego operates, you know, as an orchestra, uh, sort of the way the Padres do, bringing up prospects <laughs> and then getting them poached by other yeah. orchestras like our lead trumpet player. Yeah. I, I'm not real wild about the idea of a carbon copy Dudamel. It's like, they've got a Dudamel, go to Los Angeles and hear him. Yeah. Can I, we actually have somebody he's who... He's different than Dudamel. But we will see. I mean, I'm not prejudging him. I'm just, that's the, that's, you know, the reaction that I get is, right. oh, great, we're going to do this. You know, now we're going to be a, you know, the copycat Dudamel city. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. But I don't just I think, think that because somebody than, comes out of yeah. Venezuela, they're automatically a genius. So yeah. we'll see. He appears to me to be a lot less extroverted than Dudamel. Mm-hmm. Um, just in his style. Not that he's less intense, or less musical, or less... It, it's just not as... I don't want to say flamboyant, because Dudamel's not flamboyant for flamboyant's sake. It's... Uh, no, it comes naturally to him. Yeah. Um, but I've it's not enough, a... It's I've, not I've a kind of had enough of conductors jumping up and down, you know, in, in tune with the music uh, after yeah. Leonard Bernstein. It's like, yeah, right. he was doing his Beethoven thing, and that was great. It came naturally yeah. to him, but... I've kind of done that. But it's not a San, this, a San Diego Symphony thing. It's a San Diego thing. Having said that, I did go to hear the Bernstein concert at the Hollywood Bowl earlier this summer and uh, with, a, with a very good friend. And we were both, uh, despite the fact that they played, um, I'm trying to remember what it was. The, the, the part of the, well, no, I, I know what it was. Um, they played, played the Fugue and Variations, which was brilliant. Virtuosic piece for orchestra, the L.A. Phil, just amazing. And uh, However, for a Bernstein Centennial concert, they, they, they didn't even get the overture to Candide in as an encore. Oh. And the thing finished with, uh, with West Side Stories, you know, fin uh, or... Um, uh, the, with the there's end of place, the West Side Story right, selections, and it was kind of quiet. Uh, it's it was a down like, ending. Down ending, yeah. but I mean, come on, give us give us the Candide Overture. It's one of those sparkling it pieces is. in the American orchestral repertoire, and you, you can do a Bernstein Centennial without it. That didn't make sense yeah. to me. What I yeah, I thought that was poor poor programming because the audience were on fire for they were they were full of appreciation, and that wasn't the ending that that concert deserved. Mm. Um, but there's no doubt that uh, Dudamel and the L.A. Phil is an excellent con combination. Oh yeah, they're 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 a powerful uh, uh, combination that, that gets great results, great results. So I'm interested to see what Pyar can bring to it. Yeah, um, I kind of hope it's a little less personality driven and a little more results driven for our orchestra because I think they need less of a personality and more of a driver. Yes. Um, and again, that's a San Diego thing. The vibe of this city is there's no vibe. That's no, the vibe. It's, it's, it's just or... relaxed. People don't move here to crush it, make a lot of money, and like <laughs> people move here because they're in the military. Perhaps they got a job at Qualcomm or one of the you know biomedical companies, or more than likely, they just wanted to live by the beach for a couple of years and relax and like chill and drink. <laughs> Ballast, Ballast point. point. Well, which which what we are not being best? brought to not, you by. Not, not, yeah. Um, Could, is it possible to revisit this too often? I think I it don't is. Think, well, I don't think it is. No, well, think maybe. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. We might have to... Let us uh, know in the comments if you've made it this next far. Week's, next week's uh, pro program will not be brought to you by Alpine Brewing. Um, 
Yeah, well, it could, we could look at Stone, because Stone had a Gotodamaron. Oh, we, which... we could look at not being brought to you by Stone. Yeah, we could look Vinter at not Sherman, being... they got a Vinter Sherman. Um, that's a Wagner. Oh, that's very good. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the marriage of Figaro for a minute. Whoa! Whoa! Hey! Holy cow, what the heck? How did we get in different seats? <laughs> We're well, not 13 years old. Well, that's a, <laughs> this is stronger than I thought it was. It's pretty, it's sufficiently strong. Um, so Marriage of Figaro opens October 20th. Yeah, October 20th. So next Saturday night. Yes. Um, my soul, I mean, I, I've sung Guglielmo in Così, so I know Così pretty well. Okay. I've, uh, I've been in Don Giovanni. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a couple of times, um, and I don't think I've ever, I've ever done uh, the Marriage of Figaro. But I can tell you that it took the Rene Jacob recording to finally make it listenable for me because I just, it doesn't thrill me, especially. And I gotta say, maybe this is uh, what we're saddled with, but I, I don't really care to see it on. I, I've seen it at the Met. Uh, okay. At least I saw the second act because I was in the, in uh, uh, New York in two thousand and five. I think it was two thousand and five, and um, I, I was late for the first act. I, I was there for the second act, and I was leaving early in the morning. And I thought, you know what? That was a perfection. Hmm. That was wonderful. It, it, but but I wish I could have seen it because it, the, that theater is so big that I, I might I might have been looking at my might as well have been looking at my wristwatch. <laughs> and I mean, it was incredibly well sung. Levine was in the pit. It was the A cast and everything. Um, but I don't want to see it in a three thousand seat theater. Right. I, I know I have been inside Don Giovanni. I have been inside Cosi Fantute mm -hmm. on numerous occasions, and it looks much better from there. And I've been outside the Marriage of Figaro, or Figaro, and it doesn't look that great to me in three thousand seats. Mm -hmm. It should be in the Balboa in fourteen hundred seats, and because it's a chamber opera. And it just kind of disappoints me that we're not there yet. Um, right. What's a chamber opera now? Mozart didn't intend it. It was a it was a full fledged. Well, yeah, but the the, yeah. Even, it, the 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 court theater at Vienna was still only about you know twelve or a thousand or twelve hundred seats. It wasn't that not big. not what was it twelve hundred? Because Bayreuth, when it opened, was eleven hundred. It's the biggest theater in Europe. Right. Well, there are, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, it, the the theaters, Theater on the Wien or whatever it is in in Vienna where it premiered. It, if it, it, I think it premiered in Vienna. I don't know that. We, I, I'm, I I'm right where you are. I've I done, guarantee I've it was done, in a small theater. I've done uh, Ferrando and Cozy. I mean, let's face it. I've the, been in Don Giovanni, but so I, and I don't know Marriage of Figaro as well. I mean, but, which is but, why we're talking about it. Which is why we're talking about it. But I mean, this is my perspective on you know we have a grand opera theater here. In, in, in a 3,000-seat theater with great acoustics for grand opera. Mm -hmm. And we also have a smaller theater for a significant chamber opera, because I've sung Handel in it, I've sung Theodora okay. and Valens, and it's it's fantastic. The audience would you would enjoy it twice as much. We're not hiring anybody that really should cost, you know, uh, br breaking the, the, the company. We could do twice as many performances and make the same money in the Balboa, and the audience would have a better experience of the opera. Yeah. Can we not get there? What's what's wrong with that argument? I don't quite understand how that's not we rational. We might get there. It's rational, but there's there's always issues at play that we don't fully comprehend with uh, union requirements, union minimums. Unions are a big part of it. Um, paying the orchestra for those extra rehearsals, uh, not rehearsals, extra performances. You know, the Balboa's not cheap. 
uh, I think it's between seven and eight, seven and ten thousand dollars. You know, so your first. Well, you're gonna pay more for the Civic. Yeah, because you're paying based you on are. seat capacity. Yeah, true, true. But I'm saying, it, yeah. Anyway, no, that would be it's it's a, it's a legitimate idea, and it's one that isn't. Um, you're not the only person saying that, um, but I don't. I haven't heard anything from anyone who was a decision maker regarding moving. There have been San Diego Opera productions in the Balboa Theater, but I guess they have. But there's one coming up. The all is calm. Um, yes, well, that's not quite the same as the, the Marriage of Figaro. It's not the same as Marriage of Figaro. No, it's not. And we lost out on Hansel and Gretel as well. It's been postponed. Yeah, Hansel but, and Gretel. Hansel and Gretel, yeah, I'm Hansel. I'm Gretel. Let's see. What is, I just uh, remember Ellie? that from the Bugs Bunny cartoon. With the Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> With that witch, when she flies off and the bobby pins spin after her. Mozart is said to have looked through a hundred opera books before selecting that of The Marriage of Figaro. And in the footnote it says, he wrote in his preface to Alceste, I sought to confine the music to its true function, that of assisting, well, this is Gluck, actually, it's a note on Gluck. Mm -hmm. the, uh, music assist, the music assisting the poetry by strengthening both the expression of the sentiments and the interest of the situation. And that's what Ellie Siegermeister can do for you. Very good. You know, that's... Very good. You know what Wikipedia can do for you? What's that? Give you links immediately to Beaumarchais and De Ponte. As, let's let's have a little thing. I've noticed something <laughs> about this. Let's do. It. Let's say, let's say um, let's say uh, you say well, Marriage of Figaro is based on the Beaumarchais play, and then I'm going to do my little thing. Marriage of Figaro is based on the, the play Beaumarchais. By well, yeah. Um, okay, try it again. Try it again. Marriage of Figaro is based on the play by Beaumarchais. Beaumarchais. Yeah, exactly. I hear people say that all the time. Well, it's based on the Beaumarchais play. So? Who the hell is Beaumarchais? But they never followed up with. And Beaumarchais actually also wrote The Barber of Seville, which was the first of a trilogy. So Barber of Seville, Marriage of Figaro, and then The Guilty Mom. I can't say it in French. Uh, that, and I, someone put set that one. Uh, 20th Century Fox. Yeah, 20th Century Fox. Someone did set the third. Um, but Ghost of Versailles makes kind of a, a trilogy of it as well. But Beaumarchais, first of all, I think they just want to say Beaumarchais. Doesn't it feel good? <laughs> what, well, the Beaumarchais play? Because you're actually saying it correctly, and it's not difficult. Beaumarchais. But he was an incredible individual. Isn't there a restaurant chain called Beaumarchais? Probably. No, Bon Marché bon bon was a, the, the March. That was a uh, department store. Bon, bon Marché. Yeah, the there's also a European. Uh, yeah. Maybe we'll cut this. We won't. We're not cutting yeah, anything. Cut because it's dishonest. This is a conversation that in, about you know impressions of the classical music right. landscape culturally so, and musically. So, Bon Marché, that was not his original name. I can't remember. started with a C. Caston, I believe. And he was his predecessors have been Huguenot. So French Protestants, Meyer yeah, Meyerbeer, French Protestants, but he was born Catholic and um, son of a watchmaker. And he came up with a new device to make pocket watches accurate because they weren't accurate at all at the time. This is 1750s, I believe, 1760s. What an S-O-W. <laughs> son of a watchmaker. Son of a watchmaker. Yes, son of a watchmaker. Yeah. And uh, someone, like someone above him, said, "Hey, this is great. Go! I'm going to help you with it." And then tried to claim it's their own idea. 
and went to court and he became a celebrity based on the court case. He wins the court case. He gets the credit for the invention and then ends up making a ring watch for the kings for the queen and gets a royal appointment from it gets married to a woman and buy, and buys the name. He purchases the title Beaumarchais. Well, I see. Yes. I, I have a friend, actually, who purchased a title in uh, in England. Really? Yeah. Yeah, he got to design his own coat of arms and everything. Huh. I don't think you have to buy him here. You can just be, <laughs> you can just be a weirdo and come up with your own. Well, we from, need a coat of arms. For my money, for my money, uh, the most interesting person of the three of them is Lorenzo da Ponte. Well, before, like, before we, we get on to da Ponte, before. Beaumarchais also early, early supporter of the American Revolution. Supplied weapons, uniforms, food, supplies to the Amer to the Amer directly. Wristwatches? And wristwatches. Wow. That's how they coordinated their watches. Attack at 1115, and they all could. It wasn't 1115 and then 11. They were very large, yeah. so it was like basically a French mantle clock with a right. strap on it. Yeah. You know? And uh, he was involved in all kinds of different business transactions. He went to Spain to get some sort of permission to bring slaves to Louisiana. Um, so that's I not really part of La Liberté. <laughs> he became. <laughs> That he came to kind of represent. Never let principle stand in front of commerce. Right. And then uh, survived the French Revolution, but was always in court. So, so much for the egalitarian Beaumarchais. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But go on with Ponte. <coughs> well, Another fa fantastic. Uh, Ponte is, is an opera all to himself, and hopefully someday someone will write it. But uh, it's an, an epic life that started out with his being uh, trained for the priesthood as a young man. He was ordained. He fled. He wound up. <laughs> he he fled, wound up writing he fled opera for running a brothel <laughs> he, in he, Venice. He, he wound, well, everybody <laughs> ran a brothel in Venice. Well, that's what Venice this is. It's based on yes. So Venice is a brothel. <laughs> so um, he he, uh, uh, he write, ends up writing uh, a libretti for, uh, for for Mozart. Eventually leaves Europe and winds up in the United States, where he starts the first uh, Italian opera company in New York. After running a grocery store yeah. in New Jersey. Well, no, I thought he. he 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 ended up running the grocery store and died in New there? Jersey. Oh. But but when they they the the opera company was a was a bust. So they burned down the theater and collected the insurance, which is why theaters burned down. In case anybody doesn't know that, like the Fenice, which <laughs> yes. was a fire trap in the first Mascala. place, and uh, uh, and well the um, the the uh, the Liceu in Barcelona, you know. Yeah. They wanted to refurbish it. They wouldn't let them. They burn it down. They build it back. Um, so they burn it down. Uh, and uh, then he donates. He ends up moving in with his son-in-law, his daughter-in-law, or son-in-law or something. Who was a grocer in New Jersey. So he winds up his life as a grocer, having donated his book collection to, to form the, uh, the, the foundation of the Department of Italian Letters at Columbia University. And so everybody's standing around. If you can envision this scene, uh, Everyone standing around his coffin, you know, and, and saying, and somebody saying, "I heard he was a priest." You know, it's like, and thereby hangs a tale, you yeah. know, and quite a tale too. Yeah, what a fascinating life. Yeah, um, yeah, and he did switch. Uh, there's an aria that Figaro has at the end of the second act where he's angry at women, the scheming, the scheming women. He's angry at the women. Um, and 
actually what Beaumarchais, the, in the play, Figaro's angry at the aristocracy. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but sorry, you can't be angry at the aristocracy. So the is like, well, no one cares if you're angry at women. So we'll have him be angry at women. And, you know, these Susanna, his you maybe know, betrothed. Really, maybe he really wasn't all that angry at the aristocracy. He was just looking for a headline. It could be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but Marriage of Figaro, I, it's the first opera I ever saw. I saw it in sixth grade at the San Francisco Symphony. We drove up from Gilroy, California. Took about probably two hours on a school bus. <laughs> we got out of school, though. You grew up in Gilroy. Yeah, five years. I did years not there. know that. Yeah, five years. I've been to the Gilroy Garlic Festival twice. It's a thing. That is a thing. Last, last weekend in July, in the public park there in Gilroy, and all the proceeds go to visit Christmas the, Tree Park. Christmas Tree Park, and it goes to uh, to benefit the Gilroy Volunteer Fire Department. Yeah, or it could be Christmas Hill Park, one or the other. But uh, what a what a culinary explosion! Yeah, that it is. And you've never been. All I remember from that first, so that I would like to say that I saw the Marriage of Figaro at the San Francisco Opera as an eleven year old, and it started a lifelong love affair with opera. But it didn't. Right. That came later. Uh, what I remember is when the women, we had binoculars. They gave us, some of us had binoculars and we'd share them because when the women would, would bend over, we could see their boobs. We could see their cleavage. <laughs> That's what I remember. And there were some fireworks at the end. Oh, this is... That's... You know... Uh, and I remember maybe, the set a little bit. It was a traditional set. You know, you know whatever it takes to get people interested in the opera. Well, yeah. Every opera is about sex, but we don't ever talk about it that way. Yes. Sometimes it's a good thing when you look at some of Wagner's plots. It's, uh... Well, Wagner's... Well, Tristan is about <laughs> sex, but only on the, only on the yeah, surface. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, Siegfried and Sieglinde, and it's a little uncomfortable. Yeah, those are very ancient archetypes, though. Oh, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. I'm being facetious. Are you? Yeah. Okay. That's allowed. How dare you? Not with Wagner. No one jokes about Wagner, especially Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> not, not known for his dancing. Not known for his dancing. Not, <laughs> yeah. That's in the Classical Rebellion article on. That's right. Uh, a the lot was going on there. Of the dance. Yes. It says Wagner, not known for his dancing. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you think? Well, I think we pretty well covered it. Um, um, go see The Marriage of Figaro. Not discouraging anyone from going to see and starting a love affair to bring your binoculars. You never know what you might catch. That's right. Um, That's right. Uh, definitely uh, try to see the working backwards. The Taiwan Philharmonic in the list first piano concerto. Uh, hearing Stephen Huff in concert is not something to be missed. Mm -mm. But let me just again say how enjoyable Joyce Yang's performance was. It's well, she's a, performing again Friday. Tomorrow is it the Paganini variations? Yes, the Rachmaninoff Paganini yes. variations. Do do catch that? That that's right up her alley too. Yeah. I mean, she's a marvelously lyric pianist and and a consummate taste in musicianship. Yeah. And she has the um, where she hears colors. Oh, she's synesthetic. Yes. Yeah. Is that so? Yeah. Oh, she'll probably be hearing Paisley out of uh, you know <laughs> out of my mouth. I'm not sure what she'll make of it, but. Uh, and then also, uh, don't miss the um, uh, the Mariinsky Orchestra and the um, October twenty fourth and the San Diego Symphony doing the Shostakovich seventh. That is a uh, that's a monumental that is a monumental opportunity around here. Mm -hmm. Don't miss that. Uh, and then the Taiwan. 
Well, Marriage of Figaro. On and Marriage of Figaro. So I mean, I'm working backwards from... Uh, from Taiwan is... Okay, so backwards, we got Taiwan. Taiwan. first. We've got the... Marriage of Figaro is 20 to 28. Right, Marriage of Figaro. So then we've got the... Right in the middle of that is the... The Paganini. And we've got... Um, so right in the middle of Marriage of Figaro is... Gergiev. Gergiev on the 24th. And then coming back... We've got we've got Joyce Yang and the Rock and the Rock Monument variations on the theme from. And Pagan they're Yang. playing Mozart's Symphony Number no. Forty in G minor, which is always lovely to hear. It is. It's a magnificent piece. I have probably listened to that symphony. I used to have a vintage, like a like eighteen fifties or something Shalak. book of you know, <laughs> um, book of of uh, a two piano arrangement. Oh really? That. I don't know where it is. I'll have to see if I can find Those it. Those used to be. Very popular. Forehand piano arrangements of orchestral music. That's what people have in their homes. Sure. That's, that was their only access. That's what they still should have in their homes. Well, yeah, they don't. But I probably listened to the Symphony Number no. 40 300 times, I'm going to say. Now, here, here's just, to, just to, to wind things up. This yeah. is, this is the, the, one of the oddest things that I have, have ever come across today. I picked up a, a record at a at a thrift shop, mm -hmm. an LP, of uh, um, of Christmas music boxes oh. from a museum in Maine. But the reason that I bought it <laughs> is one of the pieces. I'm always on the lookout for a nice Christmas album. Yeah. But, but the reason that I bought this is that one of the pieces on it, if you can believe it, is. Uh, Angels Ever Bright and Holy from Handel's Theodora. Really? Of all oh, the things right. to turn up on a Victorian <laughs> music box disc, that's not oh, one that I would good. expect. I've never seen Theodora, anything from Theodora in any kind of, despite the fact that I have in fact sung a role in that opera, I've, I've never seen it crop up anywhere. Yeah, I couldn't and of all no places. Idea. So keep your eyes open, you never know what's Maybe coming Maybe I'll next. listen to Theodora this week. It's almost like a classical rebellion. But back to me. <laughs> 300 times, Mozart's Symphony Number no. 40. We all have our fixations. We do. Uh, and it's because in high school I had a job cleaning the Bureau of Land Management in Medford, Oregon. I finished high school in, in Southern Oregon. Cleaning it? Cleaning it. I vacuum, I dust, like I pick up the trash and stuff. Now, Bureau of Land Management. And I would listen to a cassette tape of Mozart's Symphony Number no. 40 and 41. I'd listen to 40, flip it over, listen to 41. As I'm cleaning, listen, flip it over, listen to 40, flip I'm it, 41, 40, 41, 40, 41, back and forth. Four hours a day, five days a week, for seven months. So I'm saying 300, probably more than 300 That's times. A death worse than fate. I loved it. No, I'm kidding. It, it got, know, man, it made, I just got, I would vacuum Manically. I would just vacuum. There was no was the into my vacuuming. The Bureau of Land Management has never been so clean. There wasn't an ounce of corruption there wasn't. in it. You vacuumed there wasn't. it all out. There wasn't. It was all about the spotted owl at the time. Do you remember the spotted <laughs> owl? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. Late 80s. Spotted owl. Perhaps if you had been uh, working, you know, for the Bureau of Cleaning, vacuuming the Bureau of Land Management during the time of, you know, the the whole Clive and Bundy thing, you know, you might have been listening to Aaron Copeland's Billy the Kid or, oh, yeah. or you know,
know, maybe the maybe the Borodin second sym first movement of the second symphony with the big, you know, five four <laughs> cowboys <laughs> right. And that's not the American. It really is the Grand Tetons in the background. You know, here come the Magnificent Seven. Borodin wrote a full-grown man symphony. Oh man, that that's one of the uh, yeah. unheralded masterpieces. I love that piece so much. That How symphony has a beard. A 19th century that Orientalist. That symphony has a beard. Oh yeah, it's got like you know enormous <laughs> Russian beard. Yeah, it's, it's not the only thing it's got. Um, it's got mountain oysters. Let me tell you. Uh, that how can that that is it, it is that's got that piece has cultural synesthesia. Because how can a 19th century Russian Orientalist, which is what Borodin really was, mm -hmm. how can, he was a chemist really, I mean he was an amateur composer, but how can a, a symphony that he wrote be that imbued with the character of the American West? <laughs> I it's don't, uncanny. It, it, it's it's at the steps of Central Asia, you know. My kind well, of, I guess those Mongolian horsemen, yeah. you know, they look like the old Brenner anyway. So it's like yeah. it's like one or the other. Here come the Magnificent Seven, either whether they're in Mongolia or in front yeah. of the Grand in Jackson Hole. But there they it's are. Still the galloping. It's the galloping. Thing. Yeah. But uh, so if you haven't ever listened to the Borodin Second, get that on your playlist. Yeah. I, I got to find that live somewhere. I'm gonna start looking. Maybe we'll go up to the Bay Area if they're doing it up there. Yeah, somewhere. That would be a good program for, for the San Diego mm -hmm. Symphony. It's a guaranteed crowd pleaser. Yeah. Guaranteed crowd pleaser. All, All right, right, I think well, that wraps it up. Yeah, it does. All right, well, okay. here's looking up your old address and classical rebellion. There we go. <laughs> All right, let's check the sound. <laughs>